Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. This week we're discussing Green Eyes by Gustavo Adolfo Becker and The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. And joining me for the discussion is returning Protagonist Podcast co-founder Todd Mack. Welcome back, Todd. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here to talk about these two stories. This is, uh, we've done this several times, uh, you know, since you retired from the weekly grind, uh, several times we've had you come back and we each just kind of choose a short story, um, to, uh, I, I think very often it's short stories that we have taught, so we don't have to do a whole lot of prep for a discussion. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's yep. been my go-to methodology. <laughs> um, it works. But often we're able to find a lot of, uh, connection, uh, between these. And in this instance, you had said, I want to do one of these short stories by, by Becker. And I, I read them. They were all actually very brief and very quick to read. And there was one where I'm like, oh, this obsession with the eyes is making me think of <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> and uh, the Telltale Heart. And then I started to look into their lives. I'm like, okay, you know, we got transatlantic romanticism happening here. And there's a lot of overlap yeah. <laughs> in, in both story, subject, style and then also these authors lives so yeah I thought it cool worked, uh, really well to bring these two together um, but before we dig into those todd how have you been i am well i'm uh i'm staying very busy teaching and uh i'm the chair of the spanish department at hillsdale college now and uh and i'm preparing just starting a new research project on uh, the Camino de Santiago, the, like the way of St. James in Spain. It's this uh, pilgrimage that people have been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years. And uh, and I just feel like there's something there. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but I'm going to go uh, this next month. I'm going to hike on the Camino for a little bit just to kind of get a feel for it. And then um, I'm planning a, to do the whole thing next spring. And uh, so I've been reading a lot about pilgrimage and, uh, and it's, I don't know, it's cool. It feels exciting. Kind of like when you choose a dissertation topic and you're like, yeah, I can really sink my teeth into this for a while. I'm kind of feeling that way right now about the Camino. Now, when you say you're going to walk the Camino, can you share with our listeners the length of the Camino Santiago? Well, so basically... I mean, they say the Camino starts wherever you are when you decide that you're going to hike the Camino. So, so Michigan, <laughs> uh, Michigan, yeah. Uh, but the trail that we're going to take is called the Camino Frances, the French Way. It starts on the French side of the Pyrenees, and it's 500 miles. So you just hike all the way across Spain because Santiago's on the Atlantic coast. So that's 500 miles. It's going to take us a while. The plan is to take our family. Um, and I'm still trying to just kind of think that all the way through part of that. That's part of the reason that mainly the reason that I'm going to go do some exploring is just to kind of think about what that means. But yeah, it's 500 miles. It's pretty far. It'll take us a while, <laughs> but that's what sabbaticals for, right? 
to go on a pilgrimage. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like a great adventure. And uh, next time we have you on, we'll, uh, we'll, well, I guess you won't have done the longer one. You'll have done the shorter one. The next time we have you on, we'll, we'll get a little yeah. update. On, on how and I've been, I've been, I'm, I'm also planning on making it. So I'll be doing, so I'll be doing a lot of writing about the Camino, uh, hopefully. And then also, um, taking pictures. So I've been getting uh, back into photography. So, uh, if you follow me like on Instagram or Facebook, then you see pictures. I've just been trying to practice getting better with my camera. So hopefully I'll be able to post some awesome pictures from Spain in the next few weeks. All right. Well, today, though, we're talking about, once again, transatlantic romanticism uh, with uh, Los Ojos Verdes by... Uh, Bacar, can you say it one more time? This is one for Spanish name I never had seen before. You you suggested it to me, and I know I'm probably not nailing that pronunciation. It's just Becker. Becker. Like Becker. Like Beckett, but with an R. Becker. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like the, uh, the there was a Ted Danson sitcom with that name at one point. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, that was first published in 1861. So Los Ojos Verdes is 1861, and it tells the story of a man becoming obsessed with a mystical creature with green eyes. The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe was first published in 1843 and tells the story of a narrator who fixate, uh, fixates on a man's pale blue eye and kills him. But then guilt drives the narrator to confess. <laughs> uh, I am surprised that I was like, once I started reading about Becker and, uh, and uh, you know, how much uh, of the, of, of, the, again that transatlantic romanticism like he is a part of i was surprised i was not more familiar with him like i kind the name kind of rung a bell but i don't think i'd ever read anything by becker i thoroughly enjoyed the stories that, that you sent um he Edgar is Poe. so good and his poetry is amazing yeah um yeah. that we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that when we talk about some of these uh <laughs> parallels between poe and becker um Poe, I can't remember when I first read The Telltale Heart. I want to say my parents read it to me as a bedtime story when I was a kid. <laughs> um, <laughs> which I know for a fact my daughter, when she was 10, asked me to read this story to her as a bedtime story. And wow. uh, I totally did. <laughs> 100%. We're doing the whole thing. One night. <laughs> We're doing this the way Edgar Allan Poe wanted us to in a single sitting without interruption. Yeah. Did you... Um, um... Oh, Did you have the English class in seventh grade where we read this with the lights off and like holding hands? It was kind of like a seance. No, I, I, there's no memory for that. And that feels like it would have embedded itself in my mind. Yeah, my mom was not happy. She was not happy about that. <laughs> the high school teacher. Oh, I, I mean, the mom. junior high great. teacher in seventh grade doing that. But uh, that does not surprise me. As uh, she she sent her 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 child away from homeschool into the public schools, and they're holding a seance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's like, yeah. So we read this story, and like she turned off the lights, and she lit these candles, and then we were all holding hands. <laughs> the telltale heart. My mom was like, uh, <laughs> "I'm going to go talk to your teacher." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just remember your mom, uh, like this completely fits with this aspect uh, of her. Just, she really didn't like Halloween and it was all about like, how quickly yeah. can we get Christmas, <laughs> Christmas stuff up? Oh yeah. My mom's right? playing Christmas music on Halloween night just to, <laughs> just to chase away the, the bad juju. <laughs> 
All right. Well, let's uh, dig into some of the trivia uh, about these two men. So Becker lived from 1836 to 1870. He was a Spanish romantic writer. Uh, and I, I, I'm sure our listeners know this, but uh, I often have to do this when I'm with my students and we're running through the history of American literature and we get to the romantics. There's always like romance is what you think of with romantics, like like the romance genre, sure. which is very different than romanticism, uh, which is kind of a reaction against um, the reason and logic of the enlightenment back into an era of kind of feelings and uh, like hyperbolic descriptions uh, of things. And uh, this is something that you see that movement in all facets of art and expression. And it's called a transatlantic movement because you definitely see it happening both in Europe and in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's a Spanish romantic writer. He mostly did short stories, but also poetry. And he was a literary critic. Poe lived from 1809 to 1849. He was an American romantic writer, mostly short stories, but he also wrote poetry and he was a literary uh, critic. Uh, Becker was moderately known during his lifetime, but became a key literary figure after his death. Poe was moderately known during his lifetime, but became a key literary figure after his death. <laughs> um, stories and poems from Becker's Rimas y Leyendas uh, um, have become standard parts of high school curriculum in Spanish-speaking countries, and stories and poems from Poe's writings have become standard parts of high school curriculum in English-speaking countries. Um, Todd, I'm going to cede the floor to you right here, but my understanding is that Becker is a big deal in Spanish literature. Is that accurate? Um, yes. Yes, he's a big deal in Spanish literature. He has a couple of poems and a couple of short stories. So if you go to... Barnes and Noble or Amazon and you f- find Becker, you're probably just going to find one volume that's called Rimas y Leyendas, which contains all of his poetry and all of his short stories in just kind of one volume. It's not huge. And it's basically what we've got of his literary output. Then he had some other, um, some other kind of essay writing, uh, but not, but not a lot more. Um, than than the Rima Zilli in this, and it's it's worth reading way more than two poems and two short stories. It's all, I think. I think it's the. This is probably a hot take. I have some colleagues that would disagree with me. I think it's the best of Spanish Romanticism. I know a lot of people would say Esperanceda is probably the like the height, and then. Becker comes later and he's like late romanticism where for some people it's kind of too romantic. It's just too much. Uh, but for me, it's just the best. I love it. And uh, it connects with me on a super deep level. It's very, very good. I so think Rima he should be Zilandis, a bigger deal than he is. That's just uh, rhymes and legends. Uh, is, is Rhymes and legends. So, yeah, so yeah. it's all his poems. And it seemed like uh, the short stories that you sent me had a very um, almost like fairy tale esque um, or uh, you know mystical uh, ele- element to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a lot of oh man, there's so many that are so so good. But yeah, definitely um, the supernatural element is very mm-hmm. important for Becker, um, and 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 this idea so the very first of his of the rhymes the very first of of the poems he says um that there's this 
there's this giant him inside of him. There's a giant, like a song inside of him and he wants to express it and he just can't. And, and much of his poetry is about this idea that there's a thing that I'm trying to say and I'm trying to express it. And I just, the words just fail me. There's, there's no, there's no way for me to express this thing. And so I just have to kind of try as best I can. And, uh, and I think that in his short stories, he's able to kind of tease out, he's again, dealing with this idea of mystery and just the mystery of the world. There are some elements of it that are, that are kind of, he, he, he starts to just sort of touch on the horror genre. Um, Mm -hmm. and some, he goes a little bit further. I don't think he ever goes as far as Poe with like house of usher or telltale heart. Um, maybe with like Monte de las Animas. There's one where a guy is haunted by a disembodied hand. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, uh, but I don't get the, uh, I don't get the, like there's a kind of darkness in, in Poe's writings that I don't, I don't get as much of with Becker for me. It feels more like what you were describing, kind of magical, supernatural. Mm-hmm. And a, and maybe a little bit less horror, yeah. Although although he does, you know, there's a lot of death, and uh, and there's a lot of monsters, you know, like mysterious deaths. It's good. It's it's all so good. I I I I taught a class last year on Spanish literature from eighteen. I think it was like Spanish literature from eighteen ten to 1910 or 1800 to 1910 or something like that. And, uh, and I hadn't read Becker for a super long time, but thankfully had the foresight to just get the, have the students get all of the rhymes of legends. And we spent a few weeks just going through all, we did all of the poetry and most of the short stories and I didn't regret it at all. And I told some (laughs) colleagues about it and I've got a colleague here who's translating uh, he's he's translating some of Becker's poetry into English, and he's like, "How did I not know about this?" And I said, "I don't know. Everybody should know about it because it's so good." <laughs> uh, yeah, I was super impressed with the stories. Uh, like we were only going to summarize one, but I I really did like the other ones that you that you had sent along. Um, f- uh, for for Poe, I will just uh, give the reminder to our listeners: uh, we've done a, at least one other Poe story uh, that his breadth of genre that he played in was, was pretty broad. He is considered the father of the detective story, but he's also considered one of the very first science fiction writers uh, in there. And he also has some comedy stuff in there. Like he was, he was all over, uh, you know, ch- ch- really chasing money. Like, eh, can this genre sell? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, will, I will give that a try. Um, but I, I, I think we, most often associate him with uh the raven telltale heart uh you know mask of the red death a lot of the the more gothic uh mm-hmm. supernatural romanticism uh that he did but uh i know we've done this in depth in a previous podcast so i won't go in depth just a reminder that he had an arch nemesis named rufus wilmont griswold who tried <laughs> to ruin poe's reputation by trashing him after his death and ended up mythologizing Poe and making him one of the most memorable figures in literary history. And so the awesome. only time anyone remembers Griswold is when they mention that he was Poe's archenemy. 
That's awesome. Uh, all right, Let, let's summarize these two stories. So, The Green Eyes. Uh, these are both pretty short stories um, in Los Ojos Verde, which I I think the translation you sent to me called it The Green Eyes. I also saw it referenced as The Emerald Eyes in a couple places. So, mm. I, I don't know which is preferred, but we have a young lord, Fernando de Argensola, who has shot a deer with a hunting group. It was a great shot, but the wounded deer is making its way. And and like this feels like uh, just kind of like almost uh, like medieval kind of kind of era, right? Like like just imagine mm, a fairy imagine tale it. setting. Uh, you could. I've always imagined it in you know like eighteen hundreds, but but okay. there's there are no markers for time except that it's a shot. And yes. so they're shooting guns. Oh, I thought it was a bow because because he mentions going out with a bow later. Oh, maybe it is. I don't know. So that's why I was kind of imagining like just your classic yeah, generic okay. fairy tale, <laughs> you yeah, know, pre-industrial okay. revolution life. Sure. Okay. Um. So uh, it was a great shot, but the wounded deer is making its way to the spring of Los Alamos. A veteran hunter warns that if it gets there, uh, the kill will be lost. And the hunting party chases after the deer, but the deer reaches the path to the spring. And uh, it's Inigo, the chief hunter, orders everyone to stop and says that as God's will, the deer has escaped. Fernando is furious. This was his kill. But Inigo explains that this trail here leads to an evil spirit. Fernando ignores this warning and pursues the wounded deer. And then we're going to jump to some ambiguous time in the future. And Fernando is despondently digging into the arm of his chair with his hunting knife. This imagery that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is created. Uh, let me find the sentence because I just loved the way this got described here. Um, part two of the story. It is. Uh, while Inigo spoke, Fernando was lost in thought, mechanically digging splinters out of an ebony chair with his hunting knife. It is such a simple sentence, but it's perfect. Like it, it makes a mental image of someone just leaning back and just digging in and and the digging splinters. Like I can hear that, even though there's no description of the sound there. Um, so Inigo asks what is bothering him and Fernando says that ever since the day with that deer he uh, or we're told that Fernando, ever since that day Fernando will wander into the forest with his bow in the morning and return at night but he never talks to anyone about what he's doing and Fernando explains that when he pursued the deer he came to a clearing with a small channel that came to a lake it was serene and peaceful uh, he thought he saw a woman's eyes in the lake and every day since, he returns to look for the woman with the green eyes. One afternoon, he saw a beautiful woman at the lake, and she had the same green eyes that he had seen in, in, in the water. Inigo is horrified and says that when he, uh, when he was warned to never take that path to the lake, it was because an imp or devil with green eyes lived there. And Inigo says, I'm just going to quote, I beg of you, by what you love most in this world, do not go back to the spring of Los Alamos. Sooner or later, its terrible curse will fall on you, and you will perish in its tainted waters. And then Fernando's going to reply back, and again, I'm just going to read the quote. By what I love most, the young man murder, murmured with a sad smile. Yes, his uh, elder, or Inigo insisted. Uh, by your parents, by your family, by the soul of the one whom heaven has destined to be your wife, by that of a servant who witnessed your birth. And then uh, Fernando says, do you know what I love most in the world? Do you know what I would sacrifice the love of my father, the kisses of the one who gave me life and all the affection that the woman of this world, could, uh, women of this world could offer me for one gaze, for just one gaze from those eyes? How could I possibly not keep on searching for them? <laughs> uh, and then we're going to jump ahead and Fernando returns to the lake and is tempted by the woman to enter the water. 
And uh, then the story's going to end by saying, Fernando took one step forward, then another. He felt slender arms wrapped around his neck. And then he felt the cold, a cold sensation, like a snowy kiss on his burning lips. Still, he hesitated, but finally he slipped and fell into the water with a fateful splash. The water splattered like sparks of light. Then it closed over his body, and silvery rings spread out until they finally disappeared. That's the end of the story. Oh, so good. So much I love so about good. that. All right, the Telltale Heart. An unnamed narrator insists that they are sane, <laughs> which is always like... That is a great opening. Uh, so uh, it, it's first person, and the narrator says, true, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am, but why will you say that I am mad? <laughs> That's such a great opening <laughs> sentence there. Um, and I'm just going to say real quick about this short story. Uh, the narrator, uh, like the, the story is told in this first person. We never get an identity to the narrator or a gender uh, at all. But even as I was typing up the summary to try and say, like, uh, the narrator and they and um, themselves, at one point I'm going to say, uh, the Google Doc kept trying to correct it to he and himself. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm deliberately <laughs> trying to leave this ambiguous because we just don't know yeah. uh, who, who the narrator is. Uh, the narrator has a disease that sharpens their senses. Classic Poe thing. Uh, especially their hearing. And the narrator loved an old man that they worked for but he had a pale blue eye with a film over it. And whenever that eye looked at the narrator, the narrator's blood ran cold. So they planned to murder the old man. The narrator describes the cleverness of their plan, that they would open the door to the old man's room every night at midnight, and they did this for a week. And they would stand perfectly still after cracking the door open. And then they would take an hour to move their head and a closed lantern into the room. They would crack open the lantern and allow one ray of light out uh, so they could just barely see anything in the room but the man's eye was always closed so the narrator felt no need to murder him it was the eye that vexed him not the man but on the eighth day as the door creaks open the man calls out who's there before the narrator uh, before the narrator does like their hour long slow dance into the room so the narrator now is not going to move at all for an hour and then slowly move in again and then allow a thin ray of light it says like a thread of a spider to shine out from the lamp like just barely opening this lamp the tiniest amount and this ray of light is going to fall directly on the old man's pale blue eye that is open and looking at the door the narrator now hears the old man's heart beating but the narrator stays perfectly still and the heartbeat is getting louder and the narrator is sure that this heartbeat is going to wake <laughs> the neighbors uh and then uh, after, uh, I think it's an hour, it says in the story, the narrator is so worried about this heartbeat that they, he, uh, or the narrator bursts into the room, the old man screams, and then the narrator smothers the the old man. And then the uh, narrator is going to uh, bury the man's body under the floorboards. The next day, the police are going to come and say that someone heard a scream in the night uh, and they just want to check in on things. And the narrator invites the police in and is so confident that they've covered their tracks so perfectly. They have them sit directly over where the old man's body is in uh, buried in the floorboards. Uh, but then as they're being interviewed and everything seems to be going so well, the narrator starts to hear the heartbeat and uh, it grows louder and louder in their, in their ears. And the narrator uh, knows that this is the heartbeat of the old man coming from under the floorboards. 
and uh the officers don't seem to notice it at all but finally the narrator uh screams uh that the old man uh, is has been killed and is under under the floorboards and uh tells the police where to tear them up to to see the old man's body the end there you go yeah two stories with obsession with eyes very different outcomes ish <laughs> yeah uh in in terms of what this uh, this obsession does uh any any initial thoughts or reactions todd um have have you and i talked about ian mcgilchrist at all oh it is okay but not anything specific (laughs) ian mcgilchrist is this uh he's a neuroscientist and a philosopher and he's written two oh, books. The first, the first is called The Master and His Emissary. Mm-hmm. And the second is called The Matter with Things. And they're both super, super good and well worth reading. Master and His Emissary is like 600 pages long. The Matter with Things is like 3,000 pages long. Um, so I would start with the, with the first. <laughs> uh, but McGilchrist's whole his whole thing is about the hemispheres of the brain, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere and how, um, uh, the, the difference between, so everybody has always known, I mean, for thousands of years, people have, we've known that there's two hemispheres in the brain and there's been kind of a sense among people that there is a difference between them. Uh, but it always ends up being super reductive and that the right brain is artistic and the left brain is for math or something like that. And and that is nonsense. Um, (laughs) And it's, well, yeah. And that's nonsense. And so, uh, and so basically scientists kind of, they've always known, but it's actually really hard to say what they each do because there's nothing that humans do that doesn't require both hemispheres. Right. And so, so when people say like, Oh, I'm a left brain learner, or a right brain learner. It's like, okay, well that could be a way to kind of frame where you think your strengths are, but sure. it's not actually left brain, right brain. Sure. So then what McGilchrist does is he says, okay, we know that there are differences between these two hemispheres. And so let's, let's figure it out. Like what is going on? And he just goes through study after study, after study, after study, after study. And teases out what's going on. And basically what he says is that uh, we have two hemispheres uh, for the simple reason that, well, basically all, anything that has a brain has two hemispheres. Every nervous system that we know of on planet Earth has this bipartite structure. And the reason why is because uh, we need to be able to eat without being eaten. So we need a part of our brain that can focus on one thing while another part of our brain can pay kind of open, vigilant attention to everything that's going on so that we don't get eaten while, while the other part of our brain is hyper-focused on one thing. So the left brain is the, is the focused, like kind of laser-focused attentive, and the right brain is kind of wide-open attentive. And, and McGilchrist's fundamental argument is that the right brain should be the master and the left brain should be the emissary. The right brain, because it pays this open attention to the world, should be really good and is really good at knowing what needs our attention. 
So it pays pays open attention to the world. It identifies something that needs study. So then it passes that over to the left hemisphere and says, okay, you go and figure out what's going on there. And then this analytical left brain cuts things into, it does analysis, which means to cut things into pieces and study them. And then what should happen is the left brain should pass that information over to the right because the right brain is really good at making connections and seeing the big picture. But the problem is that the left brain does not know that the right brain should be in charge. And so the left brain is always trying to take over. And uh, and and for McGilchrist, the problem of modernity is that we are predominantly a left brain, like dominant society. And that causes tons of problems because the emissary, the servant, has now become the master. And um, I'm getting somewhere with this. <laughs> and so he says that... Um, he, he, he's an expert in schizophrenia and he talks about the symptoms of schizophrenia and the, and then maps those onto modern society. And it's like pretty scary, uh, because, because it's pretty clear that a lot of kind of the messed up stuff that's, that's going on is because basically as a society, we're becoming schizophrenic and it's because the left hemisphere is dominant. Um, what does this have to do with anything? So in the telltale heart, um, the left brain is, it always wants to cut everything into pieces and it's always focused on like a part of a thing. So like this fixation on the eye to see a a piece of something, but not the whole thing is a totally left brain thing. And then to want to kill the thing, that's what the left brain has to do. Cause in order to do analysis, you have to cut something into pieces. And so Mm -hmm. And so all left brain analysis is essentially analysis of dead things because, because you have to cut it into pieces. So cutting the body into pieces and sticking it on the thing. But then that there's something like vital that continues to persist. Uh, I think that's super interesting. Um, so, and, and reading Becker, I, it makes me think about a lot of this too. There's kind of reaction, this like right hemisphere reaction to the, really left hemisphere dominant enlightenment, which is about like, Hey, Mm -hmm. we can just think through everything and we don't really need emotions. We can just, you know, just be cold and calculating. And, uh, and the right hemisphere is like, uh, this is a big problem. If it goes (laughs) too far, it's also a huge problem. You get sucked into the, into the, 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 the pond by the green eyed monster. But anyway, I think there's something, I think there's something there in like the tension between um, between the right and left hemisphere, and this idea of like cutting up the body, and the hyper focus on the on the eye, we don't even know anything about this person, or mm-hmm. if they're if they're really you know worthy of death. Um, it seems like almost certainly not, like <laughs> because somebody's mm-hmm. eye bothers you is not a good reason to kill them and cut them into pieces and put them under the floorboards. Agreed. But it's such a that twisted is the official way position of, seeing... of the protagonist podcast. Yes, <laughs> as co-founder of the protagonist <laughs> podcast, as co-founders, we can firmly say that if you don't like somebody's eye, you should not kill them in the night and then cut their body into pieces and stuff them in the floorboards. Um, but the kind of paranoia that's associated with that, there's a thing here, and I'm so paranoid about it. I'm so fixated on it 
that you lose the ability to see the big picture now. It's like classic left brain over right, right? What this person needs is a right brain that can see the whole thing and say, okay, this is not a good idea. But the left brain has become so, uh, so obsessed with this one thing that the right brain is and also silent, right? The left brain has access to language, but the right brain doesn't. And so, so the left brain, it, it's hard for the right brain to protest because it has no language. So the left brain often gets to do what it wants to everybody's detriment, especially the guy that's under the floorboards. Yeah. Didn't well, work and out also, well for him. Uh, in the end, the, the narrator, like they could have gotten away. Like, okay, we're not yeah. rooting for the murderer, but from the narrator's point of view, they had committed basically a perfect crime, but yep. the, the idea of this, this beating heart, uh, you know, this obsessive uh, idea of you know whether you want to say that's just guilt uh or or insanity or or whatever it is causes them to confess a crime that they were not even suspected of yeah at this moment um and i i think the idea of like uh damaging obsession we see that uh in in both these stories the telltale heart obviously the the victim the the old man mm-hmm. uh is a victim of this obsession with the filmy pale blue eye which is let's just say like <laughs> film over the eye <laughs> like it, it evokes the mental image oh yeah uh uh for that but then uh in green eyes we we see also a destructive obsession uh you yeah know, with 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 eyes uh in this instance um and uh, it, it's self-destructive to have this obsession about something that he, the, you know, the uh, young man is so desperate to obtain and that seems unobtainable to him uh, that it's it's affecting all these aspects of his life. You know, we're not really like described point for point. We just kind of get these snapshots of like this one conversation with Inigo, but it's so clear how destructive this obsession has been to him. And in the case of the Tale of the Heart, we, we see the act of destruction or, 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 you know, we're, we're told, uh, you know, about the smothering, this act of destruction because of, of this obsession, but it's, a, it's this external obsession. Uh, but in both cases, it's like this imbalanced interest is ruining lives uh, for, for these people. Mm-hmm. And I think the eye is such an evocative symbol uh, to mm-hmm. use uh, as a source uh, of something that is an object of fascination or revulsion. Uh, and be- because, uh, you know, eyes, there's something that's so poetic about about the part, you know, about, about, about uh, you know, this, the thing through which we see, but also through which so many times in, in stories or in interactions, we want to say, like, we, we can sense the truth of a person through their eyes, right? You know, like, we, we, we think we're getting some insight into them uh, through their eyes. So it's a, it's, it's a very uh, significant symbol uh, to be using in, in this, you know, whether it's the green eyes or the pale blue eye. Yeah, there's, I think there's a sense with the green eyes. There's something like so alluring about about these green eyes and and in the post story it's exactly the opposite there's something uh like kind of horrifying mm-hmm. and um repellent in this in this blue blue eye in in part because it's got this film over it so you say like the eyes are the window to the soul but there's something super disconcerting for the narrator in seeing an eye and then not i i it seems to me that that 
blue eye is it's like dead like there's mm-hmm. there's no soul there um so there's that <laughs> i uh i was thinking of um i was thinking of this line that becker said in uh he he has an essay that's called literary letters to a woman in which he basically kind of mansplains poetry to a woman. Um, mm-hmm. It's actually really good. <laughs> uh, but he just uses like, oh, you're a woman and you asked me what poetry is, so now I'm going to tell you, um, which is like, fine, whatever. Uh, but what he actually says about poetry is really um, is really good. He says, oh, no, I lost it. Um he talks about poetry being this like a vague um, desire for uh, this thing that's ineffable, uh, but beautiful and, um, and like chasing it, um, always, always chasing it. Oh, he says, uh, poetry is, it's nothing more than a melancholy, um, Aspiration? Is that a word? Yeah, aspiration. A melancholy and vague aspiration that agitates your spirit with the desire of an impossible perfection, which is what the guy, that's his problem, the the yeah. Ojos Verdes guy, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and so this is, I think Becker's saying something about poetry, this desire for this thing that's impossible. One of the, one of the rimas in one of the, like his, one of his very most famous poems that students read all the time um there's there are three women who come to the to the narrative the narrator basically and one is like um i'm beautiful and i'm blonde and i'll you know make all your dreams come true and he's like no i don't want you and then another one comes and says i'm uh, you know i i'm have dark hair and i'm also beautiful and I'll also make all your dreams come true. And he's like, no, I don't want you. And then the last one comes and says, uh, I am a dream. I am missed. I am impossibility. And he goes, oh, Ven, Ven too. <laughs> like, that's the one I want. I want the thing that is totally impossible. And I'm going to kind of reject these two women who are beautiful, but also real in pursuit of this perfection, this, what did he call it? The impossible perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the problem with the ojos verdes. That's the problem with the, 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 whoever this demon woman is that sits by the edge of the water is that she's not real and she's a demon. And if you, <laughs> both if of you which let, are problematic for a long-term relationship, right, for long-term relationships, and so if you if you go in there and the guy the 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 hunter servant hunter guy he knows he's like very practical and practical because he understands the mystery of the forest at least enough to know don't go in there after the green eyes. And so there's like this practical wisdom in the recognition of the mystery. And, yeah, I think there's and the it's respect really interesting of the that mystery. There's... There's more knowledge in him saying, don't go find out about that. than there is, you know, or wisdom, I guess, in him saying, don't go yeah. 
find out facts <laughs> or, or go experience that thing over there. Then there is in, uh, oh, what, is it Fernando? Is that the name of the? Fernando, yeah, yeah. In Fernando saying, I have to go find out about this. Um, uh-huh. And that that's a fascinating, uh, you know, kind of, kind of point that, the, that is embedded in the story is sometimes like mm-hmm. respect for the unknown can be more valuable than this like quest to go find out. Yeah. I mean, it's tempting to see Fernando as just because of what we know about romanticism and that romanticism really is a reaction to the enlightenment. So then it's easy to see Fernando as a stand in for an enlightenment kind of thinking. It's like, Hey, there's nothing to fear here. Let's just dive in. I'll just go, you know, figure it out. And like the, there's a kind of humility that is necessary to do that. And Fernando does not have it. <laughs> and that's a big problem for him. And, uh, and this kind of respect for the mystery of the forest, I think is, is really important. And something that Becker, it's a well that Becker dips from often. I, I wasn't even thinking about the fact that the guy falls in a well, but um and 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 becker becker's so he's so in love with the emotive side of things i mean he's a true romantic in the sense that for him it's all about the emotion it's all about the sublime um but he recognizes that that logic is necessary there's a in this essay, there's a part where he's, he says, I hate logic, but I know, I, I know we need it, mm-hmm. but it drives me crazy that we do, which is a, which is a totally right brained, uh, sentiment. Like the right brain knows that it needs the left. The left brain would never say that about the right. The left brain would never say, I hate emotion, but I know that it's necessary. The left brain says facts don't care about your feelings and emotions just get in the way. And so we don't need that part of things. And, um, and I think there's something of that, that kind of left brain mentality in Fernando where there's this voice that's telling him, Hey, there's mystery there. It needs to be respected. And, and Fernando, he doesn't listen. And in the end, it's a big problem for him because he gets sucked into the pond by the demon lady with the green eyes. I mean, I think that's uh, also another overlap with with Poe, who famously wrote the philosophy of composition, which does not read like a romantic talking about their writing process, because the romantics were very much about promoting this PR version of being an artist of the you know the tortured genius, where like, mm-hmm. the, you know the muse comes and touches us in the night, and and the poem spills out of us in the morning, mm-hmm. and. Poe wrote the philosophy of composition where he's like, here's the logic and reason that it takes to write a good poem. <laughs> That's full of feeling. <laughs> That's going to evoke, yeah. uh, you know, what, what he called the unity of effect uh, and the audience. These are all the things you got to do. And in, in it, he's like, uh, writers would like, uh, he says like writers would uh, die if, if audiences saw all the like thrown away drafts of, of their work, uh-huh. because we want to present this idea that we are special. <laughs> and that mm. that 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 you know we have a talent that's just from god 
and we are a vessel for that genius. And and here's our <laughs> genius. When in reality, it's it's write and revise, write and revise, throw it away because it'll never be good. Then pick it back up three days later and say, maybe there's a seed in here that I could work with. Yeah, and, you know, go 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 on it over and over. Uh, and it it really does feel very different from a lot of uh, the the version of of writing that romantics were were promoting at the time. Yeah. I think I think Becker would be more in the camp of traditional romantics in that sense that mm-hmm. um I mean he, he he's not really into um into writing about poetry. He says people who are real poets they don't write about poetry. They write poetry. Write poetry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I knew where this, this was going. <laughs> and analysis analysis is to analyze a poem is to kill it. It's to mm. perf- you're you're just performing an autopsy at that point, so you know like read it, enjoy it, don't analyze it, uh, especially not too much. Um, <laughs> so I, I think it's a probably a point of difference between the two. I can't imagine Becker saying like here are the here's the the twelve steps or the ten steps to writing. Uh, you know, yeah, a great, in, in uh, philosophy, emo- composition Poe is. Poe is breaking down the Raven and saying like, here's, here's how I wrote the Raven, what I was trying to do, uh, like in in inventing the word nevermore. Here's what I wanted to do, you know, uh, (laughs) in all these other things. Yeah. Becker, Becker will say things like, um, there's just no way, there's no way to describe this. It's beyond language. And so you ask me, what is poetry? It's like, you ask me, what is the sun? All I can do is point at it and say, it's that, that thing that's, you know, he has a famous poem that's called, po- um, poesia, it is too, like you are poetry. So, you know, I mean, he's a lover. So in the end, he's, you're asking me what poetry is. Well, I'll tell you, you are poetry, beautiful woman that I'm writing about poetry too. <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, it's not like the most helpful thing if you are looking for, uh, you know, the 10 steps to writing the next Raven poem, but I actually really, I really like it because Mm -hmm. I think that there is something that is ineffable about poetry. I don't think that you can just give the guide to how to write a great poem to everybody and then everybody will be writing the Raven. I think Poe had something special. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I, I definitely think there are different levels of talent. So, so, um, Sometimes when we're talking about the romantics, we talk about these ideas. I show them a clip of uh, this pianist named Alma Ducher, and it's a clip that's uh-huh. now like five or six years old, but she's like 13 or 14 in it. And it, it's a clip from 60 Minutes. Uh, and the correspondent from 60 Minutes draws out four notes, and then she sits there and looks at them for a minute. And then she plays what sounds like the most perfectly crafted piece of classical music. Mm-hmm. Uh, she just makes it up on the spot. Yeah. Uh, and she's a musical genius. And sure. it's like, well, it, you know, like when we're talking about like artistic genius, it's like, well, she clearly has a relationship with the music that most of us don't. Right. She's yeah. Uh, you know, it like, she just has a gift and a talent that is, it feels like being touched by the muse. And then I say, hmm. but she also was pulled out of school at age six and she practices piano for 12 hours a day. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of column A and column B here when we're talking about genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it, that there are some people who maybe have a gift for poetry or writing or storytelling or music. That's just different than a lot of people around them. Yeah. 
but are they also probably working at it an awful lot? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's that too. And the romantics, I mean, famously, many of the romantics, they like work themselves to death over this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it well, I mean, some of that them. was that they, uh, they, they thought drug use was the key to opening the music. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was drugs and it was long hours and it was, it was trying to, you know, fill their lives. I mean, when, when, when the object of your life is just the pursuit of emotion and sensation at all costs, that's going to, it's going to wear you out pretty fast. You might not always be making the best choices. <laughs> you might not. You may not be always making the best choices. And the romantics were not famous for their practical wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> but they wrote some pretty great poetry and short stories. And uh, I mean, the, and just the word, like the, the language best. that is here in the Green Eyes. And, uh, you know, I'm reading a translation in English for this, but the yeah. language in both Telltale Heart and Green Eyes, it is like there is just a skill in the craft here uh yeah. whether it's like the the use of repetition to create a feeling and in, in the telltale heart uh you know like even the very opening so true nervous very very dreadfully nervous i had been and am but then it ends with uh the, these are the last lines of, uh, of the short story um I, I felt that I must scream or die. And now again, hark louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked to dissemble no more. I admit the deed, tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. Um, you know, do you just get the louder, louder, the, you know, the, um, the, uh, you know, here, here, there at the end. Um, in, in the beginning, it's, you know, very, very, uh, like he, he does this, um, where it's like, why there? And, you know, what what's the reason? But, it's just because it's right. That's the reason. <laughs> yeah. To create the mood that he's trying to create, the, those are the right words to be repeated. And, you know, it's not like constant throughout. It's just when he chooses to do it, it's just right. And then in, in the green eyes, like I, I just read some passages there at the end. Cause it's like, Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> what are you supposed to yeah. do with the last line? Like the water splattered, like sparks of light. Then it closed over his body and silvery rings spread out until they finally disappeared. You don't summarize that. You, you just read that word for word when that's the last line of a story. Yeah. And the Spanish, I'm just looking at the Spanish here. It really is so poetic. I mean, if poetry is, and I think it is, uh, it's repetition and contrast and metaphor. I think that's all we're basically looking for when we're looking at when we're, when we're analyzing poetry. Isn't that really mm-hmm. what we're doing? We're just looking for all the different kinds of repetition uh, of sounds, of ideas and contrast and metaphors. And you've got um, this uh, una sensación fría en sus labios ardorosos. So you've got this contrast between the, uh, the cold sensation in his burning lips, un beso de nieve, uh, the kiss of the snowy kiss. No. Yeah. Y vacilo, perdió pie, cayó al agua con un rumor sordo y lúgubre. Las aguas saltaron en chispas de luz, which is just awesome. These sparks of light. Is that what they say in English? Yeah. Uh, the water splattered like sparks of light is what the translation is here. Yeah. It's like uh, the waters jumped in sparks of light and then they close on his body. Y los círculos de plata fueron ensanchándose, ensanchándose hasta expirar en las orillas. So that repetition of ensanchándose 
which is how does he what does he call it? X like the circles are the silvery circles are expanding. It's the silvery rings spread out. Yeah, that's uh, I think there's a missed opportunity there on the but part of the spread translator. Out, spread out. <laughs> in San but in Sanchando say is so much better than right? I mean it's like yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> expanding, I guess. Mm -hmm. But this yeah, I mean, there's a different visual to me. Spreading out is not the same as ensanchándose, which is more like ensancharse. It's like uh. it, it's more like expanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hasta expirar en las orillas. Anyway, it's so it's so good. Is, did, so did you say uh, say that last phrase? Expirando a las orillas. Hasta expirar en las orillas. Hasta, oh, okay. Until it expires. Like, the, the Spanish is better. Yeah, way better. <laughs> Uh, so, so the, these circles of silver expanded and expand, expanded, expanded until they Just expired died. on the shore, until they or, die on yeah, the shore. died on the shore, so I think what... Died on the shore, okay. yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's really good. This is really good language. In both of these, these are masters, uh, yeah. Poe and, and Becker. They're super good. Oh, man. There's so many of these stories that I want to talk about now, again. Well, I'm, I'm so glad, uh, like when I reached out to you, I'm like, do you want to talk about a border haze? <laughs> and you're like, what about these Beckers? Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think it would be really fun to just teach a class on Becker. That would be a fun class. I'm to fascinated. Teach. Like, like just the more I read about him in, in, you know, just getting the trivia, I'm like, oh, okay. This, this guy's up my alley. Oh yeah. He's very good. And all of the short stories. I mean, M uh, M Master Perez, the organist. Did you read that one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, for my money, I think, uh, uh, Maese Pedro, el organista, the, so it's like, uh, Master Perez, the organist. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pro it's probably my favorite of his short stories. It's so good. It's so good. It's about a, a guy who plays the organ and he's incredible. Um, and then he dies and, and nobody can really the, the the question is who could possibly replace him and then all the things that happen after and it's it's just it goes in directions that you do not expect <laughs> it's so good all right well listeners if you're looking for some some reading uh poe and becker i do recommend now a lot of becker's been translated in english right yeah uh so so you can definitely find those uh todd thank you for coming on uh to, to talk about these we'll have you on again uh you know sometime soon we always get you on in the fall and the in the winter yeah uh but thank you for coming on for th for these ones any uh anything you want to share here at the end any final thoughts no i just i'm so happy to have a chance to talk about stuff that i love and this is stuff that i love all right, well, that is going to wrap up this episode. Listeners, thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long.
I really hope that the other one worked out. I'm sure it did. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, sure, I'm it, sure did. it did. Sure did. Yeah. <laughs>